So I have the pleasure of introducing to you guys, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you guys, I spent like probably half an hour trying to get this down, packed, okay? But not only was he born a Christian, but he is a Christian. Welcome, please, Pastor David Christian. <laughs> I was waiting for that all morning. <laughs> Already. But my wife had to marry me to become a Christian. That's right. Oh boy, that's bad. Disciples are made, not born. Thank you, Pastor Ricky, for being here this week when a lot of others have headed for the sandy places, water's edge. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. So, what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who continues in the Word of God. I want to tell you about a disciple who did very well at some times and not so well at other times, by the name of Christopher Columbus. Just a few bullet points out of this book, The Light and the Glory. It's been on our shelf for 20 years at least, probably 30, and it's about the founding of America. And we're not here to talk about America this morning. We're here to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But we do have a great history as a nation. So Christopher Columbus wrote in his journal, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 and verse 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now remember, when, when Columbus was born and when he was growing up, there was no new world. All there was was what they knew was Europe and Asia and Africa, right? That was it, India, so forth. They didn't know about any intervening hemisphere. That was completely unknown. Well, not completely, but mostly unknown. He said, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And as he was growing up, somehow this became a passion on the inside of Christopher Columbus, this word. It was God speaking to him. It was like a fire that burned on the inside of him, and it just drove him from the inside. His family business was carding wool, meaning preparing wool for before it would go to the weaver. His father and his grandfather were sailors. They would make ocean trips and come back and tell stories. In their teenage years, uh, Christopher and his brother Bartolomeo moved to Portugal and became map makers. So they would have studied Eratosthenes, a Greek geographer from before Christ, who calculated the circumference of the earth. I didn't realize that there were people that believed that the planet was round. You know, I just thought that that, that all came by, you know, after Christ, but apparently not. So Columbus would also have heard about, and by the way, Eratosthenes calculated the circumference of the earth 150, 200 years before Christ within 10% accuracy by studying the sun and curvature and things like that. And, uh, and also Christopher Columbus would have heard about the travels of Marco Polo, who actually calculated that China was 4,700 miles to the east. But Columbus wanted to find an easier way to India and China by going west. You know, that was his dream. He heard about the travel of Danish explorers eight years before who sailed and reached northern Canada. But, of course, he would have thought that was like north of China, right? That's what he would have thought. 
he had done some of his own sailing up and down the coast. And also, they heard about some carved driftwood near the Azores, some islands off the coast of Spain, about 500 miles off the coast of Spain. They heard stories, which is, by the way, that's as far as anyone had ever sailed at that point in history. And um, <clears throat> they um, heard about reports about carved driftwood in that area in the bodies of two Chinese-looking men that were washed up on the shore there, way out in the Atlantic Ocean. So, of course, that stimulated the, the thought that China was the next thing to find going that way. And, uh, and those scripture verses kept burning on the inside of him. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I'm reading it again because I want you to see how the scripture formed the internal structure of a man. And how that word became alive on the inside of him and how that word became a fire on the inside of him. And you know something? You're no different from Christopher Columbus. You're no different from him. You're the same kind of container. The fire of God, you know, the, the natural fire, we have the danger that it will get out of control, right? And burn up too much. We don't want to keep it in the fireplace. The danger with the fire of God is that it will go out. Not that it will spread too much, but that it will go out. So I'm here to tell you today that the fire of God in our life begins when the scripture becomes alive on the inside of us. That's how it begins. And then we can nurse it and we can, you know, we can work that fire and keep it going and make it grow. In 1484, Columbus went to King John of Portugal to present his vision to sail to the west. And they calculated that he needed, and this book was written in 1977, so this is an obsolete figure here, but they calculated in 1977 American dollars, it was about um, a half a million dollars for him that he needed to, to make this voyage with the three ships and the 90 men. And uh, they laughed at him, told him it was unrealistic, called him arrogant. You know, the confidence that the Word of God gives you can actually make you seem arrogant to some people. But it's just, it's just confidence that God gives you. He went to King Henry VII of England and got the same thing, only worse. He was called a fool and a madman. So then he believed that it mustn't necessarily be the king and queen of Spain that God would use to send him on this voyage. So he went to them, Ferdinand and Isabella, and was told, you got bad timing. Come back later. You see, they were busy with war. So two years later, he shared his vision with someone, an Italian leader, who believed in him, and that man went to the king and queen of Spain and persuaded them, and again, they balked. He was ready to quit. He went to a monastery in Spain to nurse his wounds and poured out his heart to the prior of the monastery, Juan Perez, who was very close with the king and queen. He was the confessor of Queen Isabella. And he went to the king and queen on Columbus's behalf and persuaded them that they should consider this man again. So Columbus was finally personally received by the king and queen of Spain. But then when he realized that they were going to actually finance him and enable him to go, he presented to them several ridiculous demands 
He should have just kept his mouth shut. He said, I demand 10% of all the riches that we find. I demand to be the governor and viceroy of all the lands that we conquer. And I demand to be named the admiral of the open sea, which was something that had never been thought of before. Like, I own all the oceans. So, um, not surprisingly, they rejected him. They were ready to go with it. And when he said that, then they just shut him down. So another friend of Columbus, who knew his vision and was a known diplomat, then persuaded the king and queen to reconsider. And eight months later, in August of 1492, Columbus sailed with his three ships and his 90 men. And his experience had told him that he needed to go south to the Canary Islands and then head west, Canary Islands being off the coast of Africa. And they would have better winds that way than if they went straight west past the Azores where they would find much more stormy weather and much more opposition from the weather. After 31 days of good sailing, the men were close to mutiny because they thought they were supposed to reach their destination much sooner than that, and they became mutinous, and there was threats and joking, and, and the captains of the other ships talked to Columbus that um, this was not working. <clears throat> so Columbus yielded and said, okay, you're right. We need to turn around and go back. This is not working. Just give me three days. Just give me three days. Okay, we'll give you three days. Morning of the third day, they spotted land. Why am I telling you all this? Because the word of God that burns on the inside of you will take you through all the opposition that you find in your life of getting where God wants you to go. So nurse that word that God has spoken to you. Do you remember the, and by the way, they, you know, they found the Caribbean and, and uh, didn't realize right away that it wasn't Asia, and Columbus made more trips, more discoveries, found a lot of gold. He never successfully let go of the pursuit of the wealth and power and position, and he died 12 years later in Spain. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Some fell by the wayside. The birds came, ate it up, it never did anything. The um, second type of soil was that it fell on rocky places. And what this represents is that persecution, affliction, and tribulation. In other words, things coming from outside of us to try to stop us. To stop us from believing that word. Outside forces come and, and try to make the word unfruitful. And in the case of the parable of the sower, it's, it's successful. Uh, they, they spring, the seeds spring forth in rocky places and the sun comes out and scorches them, meaning tribulation, persecution, and affliction, um, and causes that word to not bear any fruit. The, the roots are dried up. The third kind of soil is called seed that was sown among thorny places. And Jesus said this represents things inside of us, not things outside of us, things inside of us. This is the third kind of soil. Lusts of other things, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And I looked up that word becomes, and it literally means that it was being fruitful, but it became unfruitful. So in this third kind of soil, there is actually fruit. There's actually a result of someone receiving the word and believing it and speaking it and acting on it. It's fruitful to a degree, but then internal conflicts, internal 
agendas choke that word and it becomes unfruitful. And the fourth kind, of course, is that which fell on good ground and it brought forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so that's where you and I, we overcome our lack of understanding the first kind of soil. We overcome outside challenges. We say, I don't care what tribulation, affliction comes. I don't care. I'm going to believe it. Um, I don't care what it, what it produces in, you know, in my world around me. And then we get to the place where we say, well, i got to conquer the inside of me. I'm going to believe the word even if it means i got to give up something. And this prior of this monastery that worked with Columbus before he got authorization actually worked with him spiritually and helped bring him to repentance because he was already getting over into lust as he thought about this, this project that he was wanted to embark on. And then it came back, and it, it showed itself again when he was right in front of the king and queen. And then when they got to the West Indies and found gold, then it began to try to rear up its ugly head again. But then he had to contain it because other men were getting that gold fever, and it threatened their actual the success and the return of the, of the voyage. One of the captains of the ships actually took off and went off on his own. So, I mean, it was, things were falling apart. But they finally headed back encounter severe storms, God was still after Columbus's heart. Um, but that good ground is uh, when we overcome outside opposition, we overcome inside cares of this life, and we put the word above everything else in our life. Why are we talking about this? Because Columbus is an example of a man with a, a word from God that was burning in his heart. I like the story in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus has risen from the dead, but the disciples don't know about it. The only ones who know about it are, is Mary, really. Uh, and Mary actually had an encounter with Jesus. She was the first one to see him after he was raised from the dead. And it was quite a while before anyone else saw him. And when she went back to the upper room to tell them, they didn't believe her. You remember that? They didn't believe her. And so Jesus obviously later rebuked them. So um, we learn from that to pay attention to our wives, right? Okay, I'm just going to leave that one right there. This, that's not the subject for this morning. So you and I are not necessarily a map maker like Columbus or an explorer, but you and I have a divine purpose from God. And the power for you and I to follow through on that vision and, and stay faithful to it all the way through will depend on our willingness to allow the word that God has made alive on the inside of us to make that word preeminent in our life. And that's our choice. We can choose to do that. We can choose to not do that. It's totally our choice. And it is the best choice. Amen? And we know that. But these things come and they threaten the equality of the soil, the quality of our hearts, and the way it handles the word of God. Why are we talking about this? Because the best you is the you with fire inside. The way Jesus Christ defined a true disciple, and the title of a message this morning is True Disciples Carry Fire Inside. So I want to just talk for a moment about what is a disciple. If you, want to, if you have that verse uh, 
John 8, 30, and 30, 31 and 32. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And we've believed in him. He says, so, so Jesus said to the ones who had already believed in him, if you continue, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the English standard version. Uh, the King James says, if you continue in my word, other versions say remain or uh, dwell, continue. So that word abide, if you abide in my word, that word abide there, um, it's the word meno in the Greek. Do you remember that story in John 1 where these two disciples that are following John the Baptist, they see Jesus, he gets water baptized by John the Baptist. These two disciples see Jesus and they come over to him and they start walking with him. So they're actually leaving John the Baptist and coming over to be a part of Jesus' team. That's what's happening right there. And they said, Jesus, where do you live? Where do you live? Now, I personally believe Jesus had a house in Capernaum. I believe that you can show that in Scripture. But you're not, you don't have to believe that with me. But Jesus said, come and see. They said, where do you live? He said, come and see. So they went to this house. Now that word live, where do you live? That's what I want to show you, is the word meno in the Greek. If I ask you where do you live, you know, if you ask me where I live, I live 40, 4354 Indian Springs Drive, Granville, Michigan, 49418, right? That's where I live. That's the question they asked him. The word for live there is the same as the word for abide in John 831. If you abide in my word, if you live in my word, if you continue in my word, if you dwell in my word, if you reside, habitate, stay, if you stay in my word. So this doesn't mean that we carry a 50-pound Bible around with us all the time, does it? What this means is that the things that God has spoken to us out of the scriptures take on a very, very high importance to us. They become of such high value that we refuse to let go of them. That's what that means. You okay with that this morning? Has God spoken to you? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I know he's spoken to you. Say, I'm not so sure. I am positive. Because he said, my sheep hear my voice. And you can't be born again without hearing his voice. He said to you, come unto me, and you came. You responded to his voice, and you received him. Now, if you haven't done that yet, talk to me, because I'd like to help you with that. Because God wants you in his kingdom, not outside. He wants you in his family, not outside. And the way is Jesus. He's the way in, and he's the way to stay. The scriptures tell us that the word of God itself is a fire, in Jeremiah 23, 29, it says, Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord. One of the other prophets said, I've got a fire shut up in my bones. That's you. You say, well, that's a great Old Testament prophet. I'm not like him. Jesus said, whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was greater and he said, whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so at the bottom of the totem pole, Old Testament prophets. In the middle is John the Baptist. And up at the top, that's you. Why is that? 
Not because of what you did, but because of what has been done for you. Because you have been made into a new creation and you're alive on the inside. Let me tell you about somebody that had a fire burning on the inside of them. I recently had the opportunity to travel to Asia with a local ministry called Life International. What they do is they equip and train groups in other countries on how to do pro-life ministry, how to help people with crisis pregnancies in other countries. In America, we have hundreds and hundreds of crisis pregnancy centers, but that's not true in other nations. So they exist to to provide training for that, people that want to do that. So I traveled with them recently to China, and there I met lots of awesome people, followers of Christ, some in a registered church, some in an underground church, and some in a medical clinic where we did three different seminars. In the underground church, I met Mary, a 50-year-old woman with two children. After she had her first child, her husband divorced her, went off on his own. He was bored with marriage. Then he came back. He wanted to come back, and her being a good Christian woman and having people praying for her and, and supporting her and, and exhorting her, she took him back, got pregnant again, and as you know, they had a one-child policy in China. That was changed to a two-child policy in 2015. But from 1980 through 2015, it was a one-child policy, and that's when she got pregnant was during that time. And he said to you, if you have this baby, I'm divorcing you. That would be the second time he was divorcing her, right? And uh, so she went into the word of God to get her answer. And she found in Psalm 87 these three verses. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Can you just about see her lighting up on the inside? For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Do you see what God's doing with her? Have the baby. Let the child be born. She's getting a strong message from God. And it's her destiny. And it's the destiny of this child. So she announced to her husband, who had divorced her once already, I'm having the baby. He divorced her. Just like he said. And uh, we were getting a ride home, and that little girl, by the way, she was a six or seven years old little girl that was in that seminar that we were giving, sitting on a couch, reading quietly all day. Such a good, good little girl. Two days, all day straight, just sit there reading a book all day. Such a good child. And so, how did, how did that child survive the abortion culture in that nation because God's word became a fire on the inside of somebody and they made some decisions. And uh, I've done a lot of, you know, uh, marriage work here at Res Life and, and after 
We have not been on staff for a little over two years. And it has um, adjusted some things about the way I see some things that I probably wouldn't have thought that way when I first came on staff back in 1990. But um, the three of us that were giving this seminar and then three ladies all piled into this SUV at the end of that second day of, that, of the last seminar that we did. So like the next morning we were going to fly out. So one of the three ladies in the car, actually the owner and the driver of the car, um, was this Mary who had had this second child and lost her marriage the second time. And she said, can I ask your advice? We pulled over by the apartment building where we were staying and parked by the curb, and she said, I got I to ask you a question. My husband wants to come back. What should I do? And uh, you guys can disagree with me here. All her friends in the, in the church were telling her, you got to take him back. you got to take him back. you got to do it. It's God's will. I said, don't ever take him back unless he repents and gets his heart right with God. And what I wish I would have said and thought of it later, which I've said this to a lot of people, I've said this to a lot of women, you are the bait. So your answer to him is no until you get your heart right with God. Now, maybe it was right that she got married to him the first time. Maybe it's right that she got married to him the second time. Third time, no. Now, we're not playing this game anymore. She's the bait. What I did tell her was, tell him, not until you get your heart right with Jesus Christ. And then I said, I said you're going to worry about what if he fakes it? What if he says, I got saved, and he really didn't? I said, God's going to give you discernment. I don't know why I'm telling you this part. It's not part of my message. <laughs> what I wanted you to see was this woman who took the word and let it become a fire inside of her and make decisions according to that. What I want you to do, what God wants you to do, is say, Lord, show me what is the word that you have lit up on the inside of me. What is that? I remember when we were in Mexico and <clears throat> intending to stay there for the rest of our lives. We had been there about, including my year in Houston in Bible school, about four years. And um, didn't want to leave. Loved the people, loved the ministry, loved the food, loved the country. Didn't want to leave. I had this scripture rolling around inside of me, which I ignored. And I got up to, uh, we were driving up to Michigan to give birth to our second child, Abigail, and stayed with a Bible school friend in Richardson, Texas for about two or three days. And as we were getting ready, packing the car and getting ready to leave and drive up to Michigan, he said, where are you going? I said, up to Michigan. He goes, what are you going up there for? And I said, Mark, have you known me so long and you don't know that I'm from Michigan? And he said, no, I didn't know you were from Michigan. He said, oh, that reminds me, I had a dream about you. Yeah, what was that? Well, in the dream, I asked you where you were going, and you said, I'm going up to Michigan for about a year. He had totally forgotten the dream, but when I said Michigan, it reminded him of that. And I said, okay. So we got up to Michigan, took two or three days to pray and fast and ask God, what's this about? Michigan for about a year? We were going to go back after two months. We were going to go back to Mexico, left a rented house full of furniture down there. And uh, 
<clears throat> so, as I was praying and seeking God, what are we supposed to do now? That scripture came right up in the forefront. The scripture was, Paul had determined there to winter. Paul had determined there to winter. This was September that we were making this trip. So he was talking to me, and I was ignoring him. But it wasn't too late, fortunately. We made arrangements, had an, um, another family move into the house, and eventually missionaries Johnny Varik and, and Carla Varik moved and actually moved into that house when they began their ministry in Mexico. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm telling you that to say this, that sometimes you can have a scripture kind of like wafting around inside of you and you don't realize it's God speaking to you. But if you would pay attention to it and think about it and talk to God about it, it'll go from being a thought to being a fire. And it'll give you direction. It'll give you light. It'll give you warmth. I'm not doing very good at getting through this message. But <clears throat> we got two minutes left, so I'm going to talk to you about Job. Watch this. I believe we can have chaff in our soul. And Jesus said he, uh, John the Baptist said about Jesus that he burned up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The um, idea of chaff to me, in me, is all my stinking thinking, all my thoughts that are wrong, which there's a ton of them. I'm probably the only one here, but most of my thoughts are total crap. And every once in a while I have an illumination and God helps me, and I actually have a good thought once in a while. Maybe it's not that bad, but you know, you know what I'm saying. The soul, right? It's just always trying to get misbehave all the time. Job, I love the example of Job because his soul was full of crap. And the trials of life brought that crap, that, that scum up to the surface. Right where he could see it. Right where everybody could see it. Now, he wasn't an evildoer like his friends said. His friends accused him of being a wicked man and having hidden sin. That was not the case. They were wrong. God was actually going to kill them. But what was true is that he was full of unbelief in, in not trusting God and not loving God and not seeing God for who he really was. When Job was done with his words, check this out. He started listening to God and what happened then? Transformation. When you started hearing God. So here's what I'm telling you. Bring God your junk. Bring God your junk, but bring your junk with an open heart. And let him respond to you. And what you get back from him will be pure gold. What you get back from him will be fire. And it will help burn up that chaff. The fire in the words that God spoke to Job. In, in chapter 38 through 41 of the book of Job. Burned up the chaff on the inside of Job. Restored his life around him. And converted other people to belief in God. The fire of God is a powerful thing in us. Let's get it, guys. Let's go get it. Okay? I'm not telling you how many hours to read your Bible or how many chapters to read. I'm saying... 
Go to God, get in his word, and get some fire. If you don't have it right now, go get it. It's yours for the taking. In fact, it's probably already in the inside of you burning already. Okay? But pay attention to it because it's your life, it's your deliverance, it's your future, it's your destiny. Thank you very much. God bless you. I love you guys.